Well, it's always a big risk making predictions, but one thing is for sure, climate change is going to get even more attention this year by insurers. Matthew Grant here, partner at Instech London, and your guide through our weekly podcasting journey as we meet the people driving change through innovation from around the world. Now, I've been involved in modeling catastrophes for almost 30 years, and for many years, people have tried to forecast hurricane activity for the year ahead, but the results have been mostly inconclusive. Until now, insurers have struggled to see strong evidence enough to change their assessment of risk and hence pricing from year to year. Well, that is starting to change. Reask is one of a number of companies looking for ways to help insurers and others understand the way in which climate change is driving a greater frequency and intensity in natural disasters, which usually translates into greater losses from, for example, hurricanes, which are also, by the way, referred to as cyclones and typhoons, depending on where you are in the world. The two founders of Reask, Nick Hassam and Thomas Lurudian, are currently based in Australia, but they have built models for the entire world and, in a relatively short time, built up a client base of leading insurers and investors. Now, this is a really important area. We're going to see more companies like Reask emerging and more from them too, of course. And in our discussion that follows, I've tried to keep it at a level that anyone can understand. And if we do get a bit too technical, then stand by. A short explanation is not far behind. And if this is your first episode, delighted to have you joining us. And to our regulars, thank you again. And whoever you are and wherever you are, don't forget, you are the reason we do this. Now, let's go to the land down under. Nick, Thomas, really delighted to be talking to you today. Also thrilled you are our first Australian corporate member for Inset London. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having us. We're, we're really excited to be members of Instech London and, uh, and obviously excited to be speaking to you today. Well, a lot of things to cover and, and what you're doing is very much top of mind. It's now for lots of reasons. So just a quick background for, for both of you. So, so Nick, you uh, in your career have worked with a broker. So you've actually got a very good understanding of what the client's needs are from the analytical point of view. Uh, and then Thomas, you yourself have been in a modeling organization. You started Reask in 2018. It's been really good to see how things have grown over the last five years. We sort of kept in contact. And uh, I think in the early days, Nick, we were talking about what it takes to found a company and things. So really pleased to see some of the, you know, the great clients you've got as well. So, so Nick, perhaps you could kick things off just to, to explain to people what Reask does, and then we'll dig into it more of some of the specifics around you know what's happening in the world of climate and uh, and variability. So we started Reask really to to address two key challenges that we saw in our experience of natural catastrophe modelling. Um, the first one really is around uh, you know climate um, and the need to build uh, natural catastrophe models that are smarter in their understanding of climate signals. Um, Current models are really not aware of any sort of climate forcing, uh, which makes them not as useful when you're trying to do things like understand uh, risk in a warmer climate or, or get a view of seasonal trends or look at future climate. Um, so our solution to that was to rethink the way we build hazard models and make sure they're explicitly connected to global climate data from the get-go. Um, the second goal for us, I guess, was to ensure global coverage um, with a single model there's not really much reason anymore to sort of silo uh, the model building process uh, on a region by region basis. Uh, and we put a lot of effort in designing a much more automated and scalable process uh, that, that sort of gives us this consistency uh, to model across different regions and, and get a better understanding of global risk. Yeah, that last point is is really important, isn't it? I mean, hazards don't respect boundaries or don't respect country boundaries. And, and obviously there's interconnectivity between all different parts of the world. So this is this is really 
entirely climate though, isn't it? You're looking at, you're not looking at the hazards like earthquake or non-climate perils. No, very much so. Looking in the atmosphere and 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 to a to a certain extent to the hydrosphere, but but in reality, you know what we're interested in is understanding you know how it is that climate's impacting the very extreme uh, the extreme edges of, uh, of of the perils that are that are phenomenons of that particular uh, environment. And it is really you know a global entity that we really need to consider as a whole. And you mentioned two words in there. I know what atmosphere is. I think most of our listeners will, but hydrosphere is a new one for me. Can you just explain what that means? That's the the segment of uh, you know of the earth that's that's, a, that's impacted by water. So when we talk about things like flooding or storm surge or the ocean itself, so the impacts of uh, waves and ocean modelling in, uh, in 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 storm surge and and, and the likes. Um, but then you know when we get down to the geosphere, then you're talking about things like earthquakes and and sort of those types of phenomena. So we're we're focused above the ground, um, but but primarily in the atmosphere. Well, there you go. Geosphere, hydrosphere, atmosphere. I should have known that given my background, but now you've explained them very clearly. <laughs> Thank you. And yeah, really interested in talking a bit more about where the demand is coming from for the new models, because the established catastrophe models have been there for now almost 30 years. Uh, you know, in many cases, you know, perform well, but to your point, you know, the bit that people haven't really been able to get to grips with, particularly on some of the short term, is is this climate variability and we're seeing definitely more signals that suggest that's not just a long-term issue but actually is impacting risk and therefore pricing in the short term and across you know, all of the sort of what's coming into the insurance world and technology we've seen quite a few companies now coming in to offer help with this short-term and longer-term climate risk so yeah it's a really important development for lots lots of reasons so really looking forward to getting into that in more detail and uh in terms of in terms of countries themselves i, I assume australia's one of the main areas we looked at, you said global, uh, but in terms of the balance between everything, meaning the world and Australia as a country, do you have the different sort of levels of granularity of modeling or analytics you're offering to, uh, to people? No, very much. You know, we're building, building our view from the ground up as a global solution. That still enables us to have, you know, very high resolution views of risk in individual territories. So we go all the way down to one kilometre of resolution, which for, you know, tropical cyclone is, is, is considered, you know, high resolution. Our goal really is to is to make sure that we have this consistent view. Um, so whether that's you know um, tropical cyclone risk in the South Pacific here in Australia, or in the North Indian Ocean in in Bangladesh, or or in the or in the, the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic, you know our approach is to is to have a consistent methodology that uses consistent data sources and to be able to provide that uh, that same view uh, irrespective of where we are in the uh, on the Earth. And the point you made there that one kilometer is high resolution for cyclones is a really interesting comparison to, for example, flood and sort of explains why there, you know, the models have been relatively successful for hurricanes, cyclones, typhoons, you know, all pretty much the same thing, but different parts of the world. Whereas if you go to flood, you, your high resolution is sort of needs to be around about a meter. And so very different yes. level of resolution and processing prior. So, yeah, I think that's helpful for anybody to understand when you look at the differences of what's out there and also comparing, you know, really what what is a fit for purpose in a model, but um, might come back to that later on. Uh, and then, um, Thomas, for you, I'm going to quote you from your website, and then I'm hoping you can explain what this means. I think Nick's already given us a hint to part of it, but you talk about having a globally connected framework and machine learning approach to climate pattern extraction. Uh, so, so what does that mean for people that want to uh, unpick that? Yeah, first I'll admit that 
that probably fits better in an academic paper than on the website. So I might, I might have to rephrase this one. Um, but essentially, once again, it relates to this goal we have of building a global solution. Right. So we believe that machine learning is really the only way we can get there. Um, because if you, if you think of the way hazard models have been built uh, in the last 30 years, uh, I've just been saying, um, it's still very much manual. So there's a lot of intervention from scientists and science experts and so on. And that's pretty much why they are built region by region. Uh, if you think of uh, the, big, the big names, whether it is RMS, AI, or the others, the, the flow would be that a team of scientists will spend three years on building a new hurricane model for the US, then maybe switch to, to another region, such as Japan or something like this. Um, but then it's time to go back to the US again, and there's never really time to build the full solution and the full coverage. So for us, um, the field we've been really interested in is, is pattern recognition. And to be a bit more technical, what's, what's often referred to as unsupervised learning. Um, and what's, what that means basically is we are looking for algorithms that we can let go through the vast volume of climate data and figure out by themselves what's using. So that, that's the idea of unsupervised learning. And also we still have you know, an expert screening at the end to make sure we understand the physics being picked up by the algorithm. This is really now almost a fully automated process. And that's, that is the way we can go about a global solution, but also um, having more frequent update and, and more easy updates to, to our solutions. And you mentioned in there about climate pattern recognition. You know, one of the challenges, and we were at RMS at the same time, you know, trying to grapple with how do you forecast sort of near-term changes in hurricane frequency? Is the past a guide to the future? And it was actually really difficult to get that right. So how, how do you sort of identify the signals from the noise or, or just sort of natural variability in cycles? It doesn't necessarily indicate an increased frequency of events versus the ones that you actually do want to build into the models? That's a very good question. And um, we've done quite a little bit of, of work on seasonal forecasting that we might go back to, but that's, that's essentially uh, the field that is of interest here. So the, a lot of what's been done, again, the last, the last 20 years pretty much, is, is around having experts looking at data and picking up patterns, global patterns. You know, the typical example would be the ENSO the patterns where you look at um, uh, water temperature in different boxes around the globe and so on. But they're, they're usually very simple. You know, they're usually something that a human has you know, drawn box somewhere on the globe and decides that when it's warm here uh, on Dawi you know, or Tahiti, then that, make, that means X or Y for the, the cycle. Okay, let's pause and unpick this a bit. What Thomas is referring to is the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO for short. And for the last couple of decades, an increase in temperature of the water in the central and eastern Pacific Ocean around the tropics has been linked to a reduction in the frequency of hurricane formation. But it is rather an imprecise tool for hurricane forecasting for insurance purposes. One of the most devastating hurricanes, which is Hurricane Andrew in 1992, occurred during an El Nino year. Now, Thomas goes on to talk about neural networks, and that these are an advanced type of machine learning that learns as it goes along, a bit like the human brain. What unsupervised learning lets you do is go back to the assumption and try and let machine learning algorithms, in our case, we use neural networks a lot, revisit the problem and come up with their own version of those, those metrics or those uh, climate predictors. 
Uh, and then we can test how well they do in terms of uh, you know, predicting hurricane activity or, or the phenomena. Um, and what we found doing this is that, yes, you do gain a lot in terms of predictive skills, but you also gain a lot because you don't have to do it yourself. You can trust that the machine will pick up uh, the right signals. Um, and yes, there's, there's still a need for, at the end, a screening by an expert because not all those patterns are, are physically meaningful, but it does speed up the process a lot. Well, as you say, we'll come back to that in a bit more detail when we, we talk about seasonal forecasting. And then you, you touched on this a little bit, but the sources of information that you get, I mean, I, I know there's a lot of academic research that's widely available, but I assume it's a combination of where to go for the information, but also information that you have confidence in and individuals that you, you trust. So how, how do you sort of filter out you know, what, what is the sort of best in class work and, and what are the sort of typical places you go to find that? It is um, very dependent on what we're trying to do with the data, what, what part of the model we're looking at. Uh, for the thing we just discussed, the, the global climate products available from um, either the US agencies or the European centers we can ingest in our system on a, on a monthly basis as well. So the, this gives us the ability to do things like uh, looking at you know, hurricane activity in the coming season and things like this. For other purpose, an example of that would be, you know, the tropical cyclone wind structure, or what happens to the winds when you, when you get over land. We thought we had to build our own data sets. So for this type of uh, phenomena, the global data set I just discussed are usually too coarse. We use the uh, weather forecasting model ourselves and run it at very high resolution on hundreds of historical cases. And this has been the training data on which we use the, the machine learning. And then, of course, the next thing that people think about when they're bringing in new tools or have to think about is, is the regulatory impact. In Europe, this, in the UK, we've got Solvency 2. Australia, I know you've got a sort of similar kind of regime looking at models. So how does that all play out? If people are going to use your models and they're using them for pricing and, and portfolio aggregations and capital management, how do you address that factor that it, you know, it can take a year or two for a regulator to approve a model? If someone then wants to add in RIASC, they presumably have to go through some additional kind of regulatory ap approval. The responsibility for this is, is, I guess, sort of divided between ourselves and our, and our clients. We obviously do a lot of uh, a lot of validation from a scientific perspective. We publish a lot of our methodologies. A lot of them are peer reviewed, uh, and and we sort of put that out, I guess, to the scientific community to to evaluate, you know, our methodology and our process. And then I guess you know it, it really is a process of ultimately the clients who leverage our our information for the their own levels of responsibility to their regular regulatory authorities to you know to, to sort of to be able to sort of um, be that first line of fielding questions from from regulators we provide a lot of documentation and evaluation uh, to our clients and they can leverage that we've given them a lot of transparency in terms of the way that it works the way in which our information is being used is uh, is is to augment or to you know to supplement existing risk management processes so it's not to say that you know our, our model is being used to price you know a Florida homeowner risk um, on its own independently. Uh, it's it's really a case of leveraging our information to augment an existing risk management process. What we're really keen to do is to make sure that we're transparent in the way that we provide information. 
I'm tempted to ask you which regulator in the world you find the toughest to deal with, but I, I don't want to put you on the spot on that one so people can draw their own conclusions. But I, and that's setting your point about you know, you're complementing other models as opposed to being the sole model. I think that's correct. Is that right, Nick? So that you, people aren't, they wouldn't use you independently of another model. You're a kind of an extra benefit on top of uh, what people are already licensing. Is that right? So in reality, even catastrophe modeling in and of itself is only one part of a, you know, a risk pricing process or a, or a portfolio management process. And subsequently, we're only going to be one part of that. Uh, and that will form part of a broader process that is undertaken by our clients. And what about within the clients themselves, though? Because to our earlier points, I mean, you've got some very smart people there that you know, could or have or would build models. They have got their own criteria independent of the regulator's how are people doing it? And then related to that, if anybody is looking at assessing you as a potential future choice, yeah, how can they get comfort that what you're doing is, yeah, again, it's only ever going to be a, an opinion. It's not, it's not absolute certainty, but how, how can they kind of get comfortable that what you're doing is like best practice? Yeah, look, uh, some great questions there. And I guess, you know, from our perspective, um, to answer your question before, who is the toughest regulator? The toughest regulator is our clients. Uh, the market really determines what is an appropriate uh, approach to take with regards to assessing risk. And that encompasses all of their own internal risk appetite and their own approach to risk management. So, you know, clients really are the, the, the you know, the, the gold standard in terms of trying to understand whether or not we've taken an appropriate approach. We speak to uh, to many, many people in the markets on a very regular basis, and we update them with different parts of our methodology. We also do our publications, um, which may be peer-reviewed or in sort of um, less formal um, uh, formats, and we make that information available to them. And, you know, where they need further information, we guide them along in that process. Well, now you've said your customers are the toughest regulators. I've got to ask you the next question, which you may you may feel free to avoid. Although I suspect the answer that, that, that might be um, quite pleasing to whoever you did choose. Who who is of your customers the toughest uh, the, the toughest regulator or the toughest assessor of uh, your products? Ah, oh, look, uh, yeah, great question. I mean, the the real answer is that you know that, that they all are really. Uh, you mentioned before in terms of like uh, sophisticated um, organisations in terms of how they they sort of assess risk internally. We've been very fortunate in that all of our clients are very sophisticated users of uh, of catastrophe risk assessment, catastrophe modelling, um, and hazard modelling tools. They're all very unique in their own ways, uh, whether it's, you know, ILS firms or reinsurers, um, the intermediaries and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, global insurers as well. They're all very um, unique in the way that they incorporate and, uh, and utilise our information. Well, it was a very diplomatic answer uh, and uh, no need to name names, but those of us who've been out there talking to people on that side of the equation, uh, I'm sure we'll have some people they can think of in answer to that question. Um, but that's excellent, Nick. And, and then, so you provide the tools, you provide data. We've talked about the fact people are already using other models. How does that all then fit together? How, how are people you're combining your views with what they're doing already with their models? And what we're trying to do is to make sure that organisations can augment and uh, have, uh, you know, a collaborative view of, of risk that incorporates both as and their existing approach. 
So, for example, where they don't have coverage in certain um, certain regions, uh, whereas we have global coverage and, and can provide a consistent view across all territories. Um, we obviously provide different solutions to some of the providers. Um, we do probabilistic modelling, but we also do things like event response. We do seasonal forecasting. We do a bit in climate change as well and different organisations, depending upon where they are in the insurance chain and what their goals are as an organisation, can implement and incorporate them in different ways. And digging into that a bit further, just I'm trying to get my head around from a practical point of view. So different modelling companies have different flexibility about how to get into the guts of the model and change things like frequency. But is that the way this would work? So do people need need to be able to access this kind of underlying data in the models they're using and then you can enhance it for somebody thinking about well how do i actually implement reask how, how closely connected can it be from a technical point of view to the, third, to the to the other models or is it just run alongside it organizations can consume our information through traditional sources like exposure management and aggregation management tools so there are existing platforms which can consume our information um, they can take the information at a very raw level and perform their own analysis in that respect when they're looking at it an R&D perspective if they're trying to incorporate that into existing views of risk uh, we've developed a series of different methodologies that can enable them to you know understand uh, statistics at a reasonably high level so for example climate statistics that talk about the frequency and severity of landfalling tropical cyclones in different parts of the world. And those sort of unit uh, metrics, they can then compare to unit metrics from their other views of risk, whether they be historical views or commercial catastrophe modelling views, uh, and start to have a look at what the differences between those are. Um, so there's a few different ways. And again, it really depends on how it is that companies are trying to use our information. I think one way to think of the the operational uh, side is simply how a model can answer questions that other models don't because of the global consistent approach. So you can look at relativities in, say, the view of risk we have for the long term versus this particular season in the hurricane uh, in the US, for instance. And then those relativities can be applied to, to your existing incumbent view. Or similarly, you could start to look at global correlation across different basins. And again, because our system is fully consistent, you can look at relativities between basin and then apply that as loadings or whatever way the, the, the relativity applies to, to current views. I think this is this is probably the simplest way to think about that that concept. Okay, thanks, Thomas. Uh, and then in terms of clients, uh, so Nicol Thomas, to the extent you can name some, and I know you've got some high-profile clients out there. Can you talk about who you're, who you're working with just now? I mean, if you can name names, that's great. Uh, but also just to understand the different types of organizations you're working with. We have um, global insurers. We're, we're fortunate enough to have AXA Group as a client and, and have had them uh, more or less since our inception. We talk to reinsurers. Um, we have uh, insurance intermediaries, both at the, uh, at the sort of insurance and reinsurance level. Uh, and then we sort of have uh, other areas like uh, securitized insurance funds. So we work with organizations like 12 Capital and Securus on the ILS side. Um, and again, the, they sort of provide a very different and alternative um, you know, approach to implementing and, and utilising our information. Um, we have a couple outside of that as well. So, you know, we, we work in uh, a little bit in the disaster risk financing space and we also have some interests outside of insurance altogether with, you know, sort of more traditional asset managers. Thomas, I want to come back now and 
yeah, talk a little bit more about seasonal forecasting. We've touched on this a bit, but it's such an important topic. First of all, on an annual basis, yeah, are we yet at the point where people can with confidence, or I guess you can with confidence, provide a seasonal forecast that is showing indications of variability over the, the long-term forecast, you know, to the point that people actually are going to take decisions around that, you know, both in underwriting and how much reinsurance they might be buying? That's an excellent question. And to your point, what we found is that we're quite comfortable providing a forecast in early June or maybe May um, for the season ahead. But we would be reluctant to go much further than that. And we've now done three years in a row of providing forecasts to, to 12 Capital, but I think they've started to put them publicly, actually. And yeah, they've been good. And the way you can test that is, as you say, like the first level is, can you beat the climatology? That the sort of no skill where, you know, the long-term average of hurricane landfalls, can we do better than this? So the, for, the, for the last three years, we, we have. Um, and the second point is then, can you can you do better than the other forecast out there? So that, that, that's also something where we think we've been on the better side and, and pretty happy with the way the, the model has behaved. Is there an independent body or an individual that's out there you know, tracking the forecast? Is there a kind of lead board of forecasting abilities? Because there are quite a few people that claim to do this. Some have been around for a while. But how, how would the sort of average person go out and find out independently who is doing well in this? There is a very good website from the Barcelona Supercomputing Center. Um, so they collate every forecast for the, the North Atlantic Basin. The problem with that is, again, this is, this is these are forecasts around hurricane activity in the basin. So how many named storms, how much accumulated uh, mm. cyclone energy, and so on. What we're trying to do and what Top Capital was interested in is a little bit further down the, the, the challenge, which is where are we likely to have more risk? And uh, hurricane landfall is essentially the, the next challenge, I suppose. Just to make sure everyone's clear on that, so it's the sort of first challenge of forecasting is what's a hurricane formation, but then you've got a whole second order of sort of inquiry, which is of those hurricanes that are formed, which ones actually make it landfall, and then of course, then there's a, are those hurricanes actually going to be at the sufficient level of intensity they're going to cause damage? And I guess 2020 was an unusual year where the highest number of hurricanes were formed, but actually in terms of catastrophic loss, 2020 was a strange year because. It was mostly you know, the sort of secondary perils of flood and wildfire that caused the catastrophic loss, whereas hurricane damage was, was relatively speaking, much lower. What you describe is exactly the challenge. You have some years that are very, very active in the basin, but you end up with a lot of storms uh, recurving and not making landfall. So they could be very, very strong storms, but they, they stay out at sea. In other years, you don't have much activity, but just one or two storms become what they call straight movers and and straight into either Florida or the Gulf. And, and that that's what people who've talked to are really worried about. You can actually see in some point in the future, and I accept we might get there quite quickly, you know, 1st of June, start of hurricane season, as you said, that's the point you can be more confident about the forecasts. You know, is, there a, is there a kind of reset or a top up in the reinsurance market? You know, some reinsurance programs do kick in 1st of June, 1st of July, um, but they're going to be structured earlier than that. But you can almost envisage a future state where people are like checking it, you know, checking into the forecast and saying, right, do I need to increase the uh, the coverage? And at the same time, reinsurers are going to be actually pricing more aggressively. So, yeah, a whole set of future events out there. But as you said, it's very important to understand the limitations of what the forecasting does. And also, it's more than just one piece. 
yeah, there's, there's four or five different components, some of which are harder to, to forecast than others. I think Nick mentioned that you also help out with event response. So this is when the hurricanes actually made, or the cyclone or typhoon has actually made landfall, and then you're helping people understand what the, uh, the intensity has been. Can you talk a bit about that as well? We are trying to apply the same logic, uh, which is this is a probabilistic modeling approach. We don't believe that you have enough information at landfall or, or even days after landfall to really make a, a confident deterministic uh, view of what the, the risk is at landfall. If you think of tropical cyclone winds, for instance, we don't believe there is enough information to, to really provide a, a view of the, the wind speed at the at surface level. Um, you know some things pretty well, so you would know where the cyclone has been, you would know what sort of intensity, but other things such as the size of the storm or, or the shape of the system are very hard to know, even days after, just, just because everything changes at landfall and so on. So the, the approach we take is really to, to build, essentially build a, a cat model on the fly at landfall. And we, we create 100 different views of each event. Um, and for each of those views, we'll generate the surface infield and have a, a different event footprint, so you'd call it. Uh, and from there, we can well, we can summarize that information in a, in a sort of expected risk. So we, we provide that as a one map of the, the expected wind speed at surface level. Uh, and we have provided that for the whole of 2020, both for, for US landfall and Japan to, to all subscribers. But you can then move on to the next level, which is also have uh, some metrics of the, the confidence around the, the, the reported wind speeds. Yeah, it's just sort of bizarre that you know, some insurance companies are being asked by their investors what their loss is going to be before an event has even made landfall. And as we all know, you know, it takes a couple of weeks to understand really what the impact has been. Nick, back to you for this one. But you touched on some of the organizations you work with, but can you talk about any specific uh, modeling or, or other providers and platforms who you are working with in sort of collaboration? There's a few different ways in which we can deliver that information. We can either provide it directly to them for them to incorporate in their systems, however it is that they, they feel free to do so. Um, the other way uh, that we're looking at at the moment, um, we've begun conversations with a number of different platform providers on the exposure management side to actually provide our solutions, our information uh, through those platforms themselves. So these are the traditional uh, sort of exposure management tools that are used in, in most large insurance organisations and reinsurance organisations. And what that enables us to do is to put our products directly into platforms that can actually start the process of, uh, of, of understanding and calculating expectations of, uh, of, of exposure and potentially of, of, of loss as well. One of the key areas for us that we're, we're quite excited about in terms of the use of our information is in the parametric insurance space. It really appeals to us. Um, it's much more focused on the hazard and what the potential, um, you know, what the potential for loss is there at a, at a much higher level. And that really suits the approach that we take. So we're really excited about the parametric space. Yeah, well, it's a great thing to be involved with. And, and for anybody who wants to know more about that, uh, a quick plug for our parametric insurance report, uh, everything that's going on in that space, at least everything that was going on back in October when we released it, it's moving, moving very fast. Uh, well, that was tremendous. I Just kind of taking a step back or, or you know, outside of the pure technical side, it'd be really just good just to understand what it's like building a new business in Australia. I mean, different countries have different ways of supporting 
early startups. Sometimes it's tax breaks. It's in the UK, other areas of the world. They give funding, yeah, incubator work for some. What, what's been your experience starting a business in Australia? And, and also, you know, as you are global, yeah, there's some challenges in there operating globally as well. But yeah, it'd just be interesting to hear about what the local support has been like. There's a great startup sort of atmosphere here in Australia. Whilst, you know, we're probably overexposed to natural hazards, um, you know, we have a much smaller insurance market that is serviced, you know, not just by local players, but by big global players as well. So, you know, with that smaller market in terms of things like funding and the like, um, you know, there is there is a smaller pool uh, to, to sort of draw from. But having said that, you know, there are organisations like InsureTech Australia, which I know you're familiar with, um, and then other organisations like InsureTech Gateway who've set up an office here. So there is plenty of support for organisations who are looking to push into the insurance technology space here in Australia. The vast majority of our market, our clients, our prospects are all based outside of Australia. Um, you know, we've managed to pick a place that I think, you know, is asleep a lot of the time when the rest of the world is awake. But I think what we've managed to do is to really use that to our advantage. You know, during the day when everyone else is asleep, we get to do a lot of our technical research and development, product management uh, and development, uh, get to get a lot of that out of the way. In the evenings, like we are now, sort of having conversations with clients and prospects, um, you know, around the world, in Asia, Europe and, and the US. Um, and then sort of the next day, we get to sort of follow up on all of those things uh, without being sort of interrupted. So from that perspective, we've used it to our advantage. And hopefully all things uh, going to plan at some point this year, Thomas will be uh, returning to, to Europe um, to move and, and I guess to start the process of, uh, you know, of developing our presence there in, in the European market. I admire the way you describe it as an advantage. You work in the day and then you work again at yes. night. <laughs> Clearly at some point you kind of have to get a balance right. And it's very good of you to yes. talk to me when you've got all those clients I'm sure you'd want to talk to. And then just briefly, because I know we're coming up to the, the time, in terms of funding, uh, can you talk a bit about how, the, how you're funding the business? Yeah, so currently we're bootstrapped by revenue. Um, we're lucky and fortunate enough to have uh, enough clients such that we can uh, afford to continue both servicing those clients, but also pushing forward our research and development. And um, we've had some help, and this sort of touches a little bit on your question earlier, had a little bit of help from government grants in terms of research and development um, tax incentives, which are, which are effectively, you know, um, retrospectively applied to, to sort of tax payments. In terms of external funding, we had looked to do a capital raise um, uh, sort of towards the middle of last year. Um, I guess due to a combination of things, including COVID, we decided against trying to raise funds in the middle of last year, in the middle of a pandemic, but we'll push forward with those plans um, around the same time this year towards the middle of the year. So we've continued our conversations with investors and we will really start to push that uh, towards the middle of the year. And, and with that funding, we'd be looking to scale, you know, various aspects of our business, mostly around business development and, and actually growing the business, in particular in those regions that we really want to hit in Asia, um, Europe, obviously, and then, and then eventually the US. I think it's great to be able to build a business, bootstrap it, you know, do it from your own funds. And then when you look for funding, you're in a much stronger position because you've got revenue coming in, you've got a track record, you've, you've got products, you can, you, you can really control that process a lot more. Uh, but tough in a way because there's a lot of that whole insurtech activity in the last five years has been focused around people raising funds. Uh, even if you don't have a $100 million IPO, you know, it can be harder to get visibility. But yeah, this is not a testament to your success. So you've done it the hard way. Um, and, and actually clearly you know, 
building up clients and, and that's validated by the ability to grow the business based on that revenue. That's, that's great. Uh, one final question for you both. Uh, I'll let you choose who answers this one. But how, as co-founders, how, how do you decide who gets a title CEO and, uh, and who doesn't? The name in the hat with it. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, that's good advice to any, anybody else that's uh, looking to do that. And again, thank you very much for your support. And yeah, very much to hope to see you face to face. Maybe uh, I should come out to Australia now that we've got some clients out there and uh, see you rather than you coming out to London. But uh, you'll definitely be very welcome out here when you do come out. Hopefully that's going to be happening uh, at some point this year. Fantastic. That'll be great. We look forward to it. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Thomas. Excellent. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Matthew. Well, if you found that interesting, you can also join us for an event that we're going to be doing with Reask in the spring. Details are going to follow shortly and they'll be on the website, www.instec.london, and the recording will follow soon. Now, we're delighted to have Reask as one of our corporate members, but we've been joined by more than 20 companies since the start of this year, many in the US and in Europe and in Asia. So if you are working with or building the technology that is driving change in insurance and risk management anywhere in the world, please do tell us about it. You can find me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or email us at hello at instec.london. That's it until next week. <laughs>